0: Coming up is a podcast brought to you by the dedicated and diverse volunteers at 3CR. Just a quick message before you get there. For the month of June, we're asking listeners to donate to the station to help keep us going. In 2023, we're asking our community to stay tuned, stay radical. We rely on the generous donations of the community to survive. Go to 3cr.org.au slash donate and show your support for community-owned and community-run media. Thanks for your support and happy listening.
1: Well, good afternoon, listeners. This is The Dolce Programme, the Australian Council for Defence of Government Schools, and we're here every Saturday, as I'm sure you're very well aware. And we're here to defend and to promote public education and doesn't it need us at the moment, and don't we need 3CR? Because today is Radiothon Day and we have to raise 4500 at least. We usually raise a little bit more, so we're hoping that you will be very generous and you will ring 9419 8377 at 3CR Radiothon and pledge your money for the dogs program. Uh, we've got a thirty four program for you too. We're, we're not asking you to give money for nothing or no. Uh, we have a press release, which you will find on our website at www info, and um, it's about how sectarian elites determine Australian education funding policy. There was a fascinating article in the Sydney Morning Herald written by Madeleine Heffernan about a gentleman who is perhaps one of the most powerful people when it comes to funding of education in Australia. And guess which school he went to guess where his uh his interests really lie so that is our press release number 985 and here it is
0: thanks jean so this is the dog's press release 985 how sectarian elites determine australian education funding policy on june 9th madeline heffernan an education reporter from the fairfax press had a business lunch costing $311.50 with Michael Chaney, one of the business mandarins who run Australian education funding policy. Chaney's own school background, his career, his contacts, and his attitude are symptomatic of what has gone wrong, very wrong, in Australian education funding policy. There is a strange born-to-rule complacency about the role this member of the new Catholic establishment has played in shortchanging the generations of public school children suffering gross inequalities in the sectarian Australian education system during the last 60 years. Perhaps the most extraordinary statement in the Fairfax report is the following. From the board's perspective, nothing much changes when the governments change. The ministers have all taken the board's recommendations in full, which is gratifying for Cheney. Madeline Heffernan also tells us Cheney had just flown in from his home of Perth, where he is a part of a large, prominent tribe that includes his four children, 13 grandchildren, and his Norwegian ma- wife, Marguerite. You might have heard of his politician father, the late Fred Cheney, or his daughter, Kate Cheney, the new Teal member for Curtin. Cheney chose business rather than politics. still has a bit to do with our nation's politicians. As chairman of the National School Resourcing Board, which provides independent oversight of Commonwealth school funding, he's dealt with five federal education ministers in six years. Labor's Jason Clare is the latest, pouring record funding into state, Catholic and independent schools. From the board's perspective, nothing much changes when the governments change. The ministers have all taken the board's recommendations in full, which is gratifying for Cheney. I ask whether his family's political experience helps him deal with Canberra. Maybe it helps you understand how the sausage is made, I say. Unless you're in there, you don't really understand, he responds. While Cheney started his career as a petroleum geologist and made his name in business, education has always been important. He enjoyed boarding at a Christian Brothers school in Perth, chaired his children's Catholic school, and was Chancellor of the University of Western Australia. But there are grandchildren in the public system. Cheney admits he didn't understand how school funding worked when the Liberals' Simon Birmingham appointed him in 2017. What has struck me on my time on the board is the complexity of the system, he says. His experience running conglomerate Wesfarmers, which owns everything from Bunnings to Gas, has helped him take a big picture view. Under the Gonski School Funding System, the Federal Education Department calculates an estimate of how much public funding each school needs to meet its students' educational needs, known as the Schooling Resource Standard or the SRS. The SRS is made up of a base amount and the loadings for small or remote schools, students who are Indigenous disadvantaged, have a disability or low English proficiency. For non-government schools, the Commonwealth provides 80% of each school's SRS and the states the remaining 20%. For state schools, the formula is reversed. States and territories provide 80% of each government school's SRS and the Commonwealth 20%. One change is government funding to private schools is now based on parents' capacity to pay school fees measured by income tax rather than outdated census data. If the parents are well off, they'll get a lot less money in the school than if they're not well off, Cheney explains. In Victoria, 19% of the state's private schools received more funding this year, 36% got less, and close to 45% received the same amount. State school advocates say the system is needs-based in name only, as states, including Victoria, bulk at fully funding state schools while extending full funding to Catholic and independent schools. The Albanese government has promised to work with states and territories to get every school to 100% of its fair funding level. I put it to Cheney that she would never design this system from scratch. He doesn't agree. Every government believes they should fund non-government schools and now they have a formula to do so. Once you've got anything in place, it's likely to remain, he says. I think any Australian government would be very disinclined to say, well, everyone can just do their own thing and work out their own funding formula because there's an interest in having commonality across Australia. So the student from a certain socioeconomic group gets the same funding. Federal government funding is given to dozens of state, Catholic and independent education authorities in lump sums, which then distribute the money according to their own arrangements. Cheney has called for more transparency on how state and territory education departments fund individual schools and how all schools spend their funding. The board analysis has found seemingly identical government schools received vastly different amounts because the states used their own formula to distribute it change is coming in a win for transparency the government has accepted the board's recommendation that all education authorities should be required to publish their funding model in 2018 the A's reported that several needy victorian schools had up to 37% of their allocated government funding diverted, while Catholic schools in wealthier areas received hundreds of thousands of dollars more than the federal government had allocated. Very interesting facts and figures there. Back over to you, Jean. Well, that was our press release for this week, and uh, now Dale is going to read us a very
1: interesting article, uh, which was written by, I believe, uh, Jane Carey
2: for the Saturday paper.
1: Uh, underfunded public schools suffer. Over
2: to Dale. Thank you, Jean. Yes, here's the article by Jane Caro, underfunded public schools suffer. Rising inequality in the Australian school system is leading to a drop in the standard of education as the public sector grapples with teacher burnout and a shortage of funding. So in the 2020... 23 years since then Prime Minister John Howard and his Education Minister David Kemp decided parental choice should be at the centre of Australia's publicly subsidised education system, our schools have become increasingly segregated. Middle-class families have flocked to what they see as desirable schools and left the rest in their dust. In 2021, an organisation for... Economic Cooperation Development OECD study that compares education systems internationally found 41% of government schools in Australia could be classed as disadvantaged, compared with just 3% of Catholic and less than 1% of independent schools. Professor Barry McGaw, who once headed education at the OECD, is now at the Melbourne University Graduate School of Education. And he says, Australia is significantly less equitable than the OECD average. We were a high quality, low equity performer, but our quality is going down and our equity is not improving. What drags our results down is we don't look after the lowest performance. Professor Jane Kenway of Monash University agrees. The Australian school system is one of the most privatised in the world and our results are ordinary. People who care about public education that is available to all, paid for by all, are worried. Many public schools are overcrowded, their playgrounds jam-packed with demountable classrooms. Almost all are hemorrhaging teachers, most of whom are leaving the profession they love because they are burnt out, exhausted, angry, and demoralized. Too few teachers means too many lost hours of learning, as classes are either minimally supervised, combined, or go unsupervised altogether. Casual teachers are almost impossible to find. COVID has left a generation of traumatized kids and parents but also traumatised teachers. As a profession, they were asked to convert lessons designed for the classroom to online and then back again, often with hardly any notice. Teachers in many public schools felt thrown under the bus by their employers during the pandemic, forced to return to classrooms with no air filters and a curt instruction to open the windows. Little consideration was given to a teacher's personal vulnerability or if they had vulnerable family members at home. A study by education economist Adam Roros revealed that during COVID, the Morrison government gave private schools billions in JobKeeper subsidies and transitional funding in a deal that delayed the implementation of cuts recommended under the second Gonski report in 2018 public schools were underfunded by more than $6.5 billion each year. Since COVID, mental health issues in classrooms have increased alarmingly. Recently, a video of a student from a high-fee Sydney private school attacking a classmate with a table appeared in the media. The principal responded appropriately to the violence, but he also reminded students that videoing in classrooms is not permitted. This is another double standard we apply to our different school systems. Violent incidents in public schools must be notified to the department and the statistics are released publicly, leading to a field day of negative headlines about chaos in our public schools every year. Unless videoed or leaked, such incidents in private schools can remain private. Considering the responsibilities they shoulder, teachers and principals in public schools are underpaid and overworked. And every one of the schools they work in, whether they serve a wealthier population or a poorer one, is chronically underfunded. Public schools are meant to be funded 80% by state governments and 20% by the Commonwealth. Private schools receive the reverse, plus fees and tax deductible donations. However, if funding continues as it is, virtually no public schools outside the ACT are expected to reach more than 90% of their schooling resource standard, the SRS, the resources a school needs to do its job adequately in the foreseeable future. By contrast, some private schools are funded at 200% of the SRS. Schools with a lot of children from disadvantaged backgrounds, like the schools I went to, are the emergency wards of Australian education. Given public schools are now overwhelmingly educating those students with the highest level of needs, whose numbers are growing, the fact virtually none of them is at their full SRS is horrifying. It's also a major factor in the demoralisation of their teachers, It's soul-destroying to see what needs to be done to help a student and yet know that the school cannot afford to do it. Rubbing salt into the wound is the likelihood another publicly subsidised school down the road is resourced beyond dreams of avarice and can expel its difficult kids to be picked up by the local public one. Trevor Kobold, National Convener of Save Our Schools, believes funding systematically favours private schools. He says that despite the increasing concentration of the neediest and so most expensive to teach kids in public education, funding for students in private education has increased at three times the rate for public schools over the past decade. Kobold's points the finger not only at neoliberal choice-driven ideology or even the lobbying power of the religious schools, but at dubious deals that favour the private sector. Funding agreements are a massive fraud on public schools, he says. All states, except Western Australia and South Australia, are funding their schools at less than 75% of the SRS. If this continues, the maximum state share of SRS will have fallen to 71% by 2029. As Roris points out, that state funding is actually inflated as non-recurrent costs such as capital depreciation, NESA, New South Wales Education Standards Authority, and even some transport costs are included in the funding given to public schools. What is to be done about this slow-motion educational disaster? There are some flickers of hope from a few of the states and the federal government. The tone of voice about public schools has changed in New South Wales. Victoria has removed the exemption from payroll tax for private schools, highest fees, and in the federal budget, there was a commitment to lift all schools in Central Australia, teaching some of the neediest children to their rightful level of SRS. That is surely the very least the public, the budget could do, given the extraordinary expenditure of $17.4 billion on private schools in the next financial year. Federal Education Minister Jason Clare is also keenly aware of what he calls the funding gap and the education gap. Schools with a lot of children from disadvantaged backgrounds, like the school I went to, are the emergency wards of Australian education, Claire says. Emergency wards have a battery of specialists and machines to save lives. This is what I mean when I say funding is critical, but so is what it's spent on. Given the dire effect of COVID-19, Public schools are no longer able to rely on the dedication and professionalism of their teaching staff to overcome generational disadvantage, the measurable effect of poverty on children's brains or the explosion of traumatised families since the pandemic. Everyone I spoke to for this article agreed we must go back to the original intention of the Gonski review into school funding when it was first convened and implement a transparent, needs-based, sector-blind school funding scheme. Other suggestions include removing public funding entirely from schools charging fees above the average cost of educating a child in a public school. Another proposal from authors Tom Greenwell and Chris Bonner in their book Waiting for Gonski is that all schools, whoever runs them, should be fully publicly funded and while they may keep their religious character, must abide by the same rules as public schools regarding enrolments and zoning. This is what happens in both Britain and New Zealand. Schools could opt out but would lose all public funding. Barry McGaw points to the Netherlands as a case in point where 70% of schools are privately managed, but all schools receive the same funding. And to Alberta in Canada, where schools receive the same funding, but taxpayers nominate which type of school they want some of their taxes to fund and then must send their children to them. These are radically different models with their own share of controversy among both private and public school supporters, but all are currently operating in other countries with results that are no worse than ours and arguably often better. It is past time for a change. As Kevin Bates, Federal Secretary of the Australian Education Union says, an entire generation of students has been let down by governments who knew what was needed and failed to deliver. Well, thank you very much,
1: Dale. And uh, remember, it's radiothon day. Although we are raising our money, we've uh, we've got four thousand dollars so far, but uh, we do need some more. We need a lot more. So please ring nine four one nine eight three double seven to pledge your money for three CR and the dogs program. Pledge today. And pay later. And everything over $2 is tax deductible. The next article comes from the Murdoch Press, would you believe? Now we're not we're not great uh, admirers of the Murdoch Press. And it's a very interesting article because it actually tells us about the billions of dollars of Catholic revenue. They get about 23 billion every year in, in revenue, which means that they have. A very, very big asset base. But part of that, in fact, a large part of that $23 billion comes from taxpayer funds to their schools and their hospitals and their other assets. The bishops are in trouble because the money coming in through the collection plate is dwindling. The parishioner numbers are dwindling. But here we have a fascinating article which tells us about the the money behind the Catholic Church in Australia and what they should do with it. So here it is.
0: Thanks, Jean. So this article is entitled Billions of Dollars of Catholic Revenue Should Be Tapped to Fund Sex Abuse Crisis and it has been written by John Ferguson. The sex abuse crisis engulfing the Catholic Church threatens to break the back of its financial structures without an urgent rethink of how much as as much as an estimated $500 of its wealth in Australia is handled, according to the former senior advisor to the faith's bishops. Economist Brendan Long has warned that the complex structure of the church could lead to enduring huge deficits in many parishes and dioceses, despite the wealth of the church's broader economic assets in Australia. However, much of the estimated wealth is tied up in complex structures that are out of the hands of bishops who are facing falling church numbers, the effects of the pandemic and a generational backlash caused by the abuse scandal. Dr Long estimates the total wealth of the church's economic assets in Australia is huge, with a $23 billion total annual revenue base that combines entities such as schools, hospitals, the Australian Catholic University and the St Vincent de Paul Society. But while arms of the church are performing strongly, mainstream activities such as daily parish life have been under sustained pressure. Dr Long is a senior research fellow at the Australian Centre for Christianity and Culture and is a former advisor to the Australian Catholics' Catholic Bishops' Conference. The $500 billion estimate is based on the wealth needed to generate the $23 billion worth of total annual revenue among the wealthy arms of the church. It does not factor in some costs. Dr Long has previously raised the spectre of Catholic hospitals and schools paying a 1% levy to compensate abuse victims, And says there is a concentration of wealth in the three big archdioceses of Sydney, Melbourne and Brisbane. The real economic value of the church lies in the income streams that can be generated by the operative use of assets held. He writes in Encountering God, a theological book examining the role of churches in modern society. Dr. Long told The Weekend Australian his updated financial analysis was conducted before the winding down of Catholic Church insurance, which he says was causing absolute chaos close to the end of the financial year. However, in some ways, the paper predicts the CCI collapse by indicating that the costs of dealing with historical sexual abuse claims are increasing and threaten to break the back of the church financially, he said. The question is, where do we go from here? Well, I provided my own solution. Think about lit- levying the income streams of the church defined broadly, real flowing rivers of gold, to steady the ship and ensure that the full costs of dealing with child sexual abuse are sustainably funded. Dr Long said the gross revenue of Catholic education in Australia was $13.7 billion in 2019, and the revenue from seven Catholic healthcare providers was $7.8 billion in 2020 to 2021. He argued the total revenue of Catholic hospitals, St. Vincent de Paul, and the ACU was about $9 billion a year. These organisations could, if they chose, decide to make a fiscal contribution to deal with our wicked problem, he said. They have the financial capacity to do this. So the reality is that we don't have in Australia the poor church Pope Francis wants. What we have is one part of the church rapidly going broke and another very rich. In fiscal terms, something of a pantomime horse. Dr Long writes that a key issue is that while the church in Australia is substantially wealthy, a large part of the corporate revenues flow to bodies that have independence under canon law. So a bishop cannot just access these revenue streams to offset the fiscal costs of responding to sexual abuse, he says. That's some very interesting news about the Catholic Church. Uh, back over to Eugene.
1: Well, we hope that you're looking at your bank balance and you're uh, considering reading three CR to pledge or the radio phone. At nine four one nine eight three double seven. 7. Just do it. Quite a few people have done it, and uh, we'll be telling you about them a bit later. But get yourself onto our list as quickly as possible. Now we've got a very interesting article about the OECD. The OECD has decided that schools should be banned from using religion as criteria for, for admission into school. Very interesting indeed. This is the dog's position, of course. We believe that education should be open to all, free, secular and universal. That is our platform, free, secular and universal education for every child in this country. But the OECD thinks that that should be the case throughout the world. So here's the article.
2: Thanks, Jean. Yes, I've got an article here by Gabriella Swirling titled Schools should be banned from using religion as admissions criteria, says the United Nations, and it's from The Telegraph in UK. So the United Nations has called for a ban on religion being used to select pupils in England in what religious leaders and MPs have branded a secular inspired attack on faith schools the UN Committee on the Rights of the Child published a report on child rights in the UK and concluded that preventing the use of religion as a selection criterion for school's admission in England was a priority. It also recommended repealing legal provisions for compulsory attendance in collective worship and called on the government to establish statutory guidance to ensure that children have the right to withdraw from religious classes without parental consent. However, the report has sparked a backlash from MPs, religious leaders and faith school providers who claimed that it would be illiberal to deny religious families the basic right of a religious education and that it was inaccurate to claim that collective worship attendance is compulsory. But Megan Manson, head of campaigns at the National Secular Society, welcomed the call faith-based selection at schools to be abolished, saying it was disgraceful that religious discrimination is permitted in the schools that we all pay for, and urged the government to act on the report's conclusions. Most types of faith school, schools in England qualify for exemptions from the Equality Act from 2010, which enabled them to prioritise children from families who share their faith if they are oversubscribed. This can include requirements for parents and children to regularly attend a local place of worship or provide evidence of baptism. As a result, some parents are unable to send their children to their local state school. And this is why the dogs argue for separation of church and state. Render unto God what is God's and render unto Caesar what is Caesar's. Faith is a personal choice and it has nothing to do with the state. If the government is paying for the school, then all children should be welcome regardless of their faith. Faith is a personal choice. It has nothing to do with state-funded education. Back to you, Jean. Well, that was very interesting, wasn't it?
1: Uh, But now we'll have a break. But before the break, remember to ring 9419 8377 and pledge your donation to the dogs or 3CR if you have not already done so.
0: Get ready to add your support during our annual Radiothon. Stay tuned, stay radical. 3CR Radiothon fundraiser, June 2023.
3: To donate, call the station 039419 8377 or donate online 3cr.org.au
0: 3CR Radiothon
1: 2023. Stay tuned. Stay radical. Well, we hope you're still listening to the dog program on this Radiothon day, very important day, the year for 3CR and for the dogs, and we're going with Jeff over to the United States and the UK to find out what they're about.
3: Thanks, Jean. And we're going to Diana Ravitch's blog, of course, as we like to do. But before we do that, I'd just like to remind you all, donate. That'd be great to 3CR, especially mentioning the dogs. And if you'd like to do that, go to 3cr.org.au and check out the donate page where you can donate online or you can uh, ring on 03. 03- 94198377 and we'll be really happy don't forget to mention the dogs program and we'd be really appreciative of all your support because we need to keep public schools well in the, in, the, in the focus for all of our kids and our sanity in general now we're going to go to Diana Ravitch's blog where she highlights an article by Karen Francisco and Carol Burris and which The link is on her blog, but I'll read what Diane has said about a new trend in the American uh, education system, and it is towards extreme right-wing Christian nationalist charter schools, which are the private schools over there. She writes about the growth of this new right movement, and it says... The Religious Rights scored a win this week when Oklahoma's Virtual Charter School Board approved the opening of the nation's first religious charter school, which, if it's actually allowed to open as planned in 2024 for grades kindergarten to 12, will weave Catholic doctrine into every single subject that students take. Given that charter schools are publicly funded and public schools aren't supposed to provide religious education, although they can teach about religion, you may wonder how this school could be given permission to exist. The decision is no surprise to people watching the way some charter schools run by right-wing organisations have been operating in recent years, pushing the boundaries of the separation of church and state embedded in the US Constitution, even as Supreme Court decisions have chipped away at it. Details can be found in a new report entitled, A Sharp Turn Right – A New Breed of Charter Schools Delivers the Conservative Agenda. It was written by the non-profit Network for Public Education, a group that advocates for traditional public school districts and opposes charter schools, and has written reports in recent years chronicling waste and abuse of public funding of charter schools. The network's newest report looks at charter schools that it says are designed to attract Christian nationalists with specific imagery and curriculum. The student... Bodies of these schools are largely whiter and wealthier than other schools, in the charter sector and in traditional public districts, and have deep connections to people within conservative Christian movements, the report says. Former U.S. Education Secretary Betsy DeVos, a leader in the movement to expand charter schools and school vouchers, which use public funds for private and religious school education, has acknowledged that her work in the education sphere is driven by a desire to advance school choice as a path to advance God's kingdom. Her husband, Amway heir Richard DeVos, who worked with her for decades in the school choice movement, said he was sorry that public schools displaced churches as the centre of communities. The charter school movement moved into new territory Monday when the Oklahoma Statewide Virtual Charter School Board approved on a 3-2 vote an application for the opening of a virtual school to be named St Isidora of Seville Catholic Virtual School and run by the Roman Catholic Archdiocese of Oklahoma City and the Diocese of Tulsa. The vote will be challenged in court, as the attorney, attorney and education policy scholar Kevin Wellner wrote on his blog last year. We can expect to see litigation around whether the church run charters can successfully assert their free exercise rights in an attempt to run the school without restrictions on proselytizing and religiously motivated discrimination the Supreme Court has been laying the groundwork for religious charter schools. The new report by the Network for Public Education focuses on two types of charter schools, classical charters, which use the word classical in their names, and those offering back-to-basics curriculum. Diana Ravitch, an education historian and co-founder of Network for Public Education, said in an introduction to the report that these charter schools are the lesser-known third part of a strategy by right-wing Christians to undermine secular public education. The others are vouchers and similar programs that use public funding for private and religious education and book curricular bans. While private classical schools have a long history, emphasising Eurocentric texts in the study of Latin and Greek, what is new is the use of taxpayer dollars to fund them when they become or are established as charter schools, the report said. Founders of classical charters generally reject modern instructional practices and accuse progressive-era educational leaders such as John Dewey for removing Christian ideals from the curriculum. The Network for Public Education's report notices that in classical private Christian schools, the curriculum focuses not only on the West, the Western canon, Homer, C.S. Lewis and beyond, but also on scripture. Classical charter schools emphasise values or virtues which stand as shorthand for quoted scripture, scripture it says, which is... O- which is especially true of classical charters that have opened since Donald Trump became president in 2017. From videos posted on websites to crosses shown on top of the school, we found examples after example of charter schools presenting themselves as free private Christian schools, the report says. It cited Liberty Common High School in Fort Collins, Colorado, which celebrates capstones, representing the highest order of virtue and character, including prudence, temperance and patriotism, and the American Classical Charter Academy in St. Cloud, Florida, which promotes eight pillars of character and four classical virtues. Back to basic schools, on the other hand, use red, white and blue school colours, patriotic logos and pictures of the founding fathers, along with terms such as virtue, patriotism and sometimes outright references to religion, the report says. Citing as an example the website of the four-campus Advantage Academy in Texas, which boasts of educating students in a faith-friendly environment. The Cincinnati Classical Academy, another charter school, does not advertise its charter status on its website while offering a free education with instruction in moral character. The American Leadership Academy in Utah posts videos of its choir singing religious songs. One includes the note... We want to help kids and adults turn to Jesus or become Jesus' people. The fastest-growing sector of right-wing charters combines both classical virtuous curriculum with hyper-patriotism, exemplified by charter schools that adopt the Hillside 1776 curriculum, which is centred on Western civilization and designed to help students acquire a mature love for America, its organisers say. The curriculum comes from the Hillside College in Michigan, this longtime president, Larry Arne, is an ally of Trump's and is aligned with DeVos. A hillside kindergarten to 12 civics and US history curriculum, released in 2021, extols conservative values, attacks liberal ones and distorts civil rights history, saying, for example, the civil rights movement was almost immediately turned into programs that ran counter to the lofty ideals of the Founders. The Network for Public Education said that it had identified 273 open charter schools that offer a classical curriculum and or have websites designed to attract white conservative families with for-profit management corporations running 29% of them, a percentage nearly twice as high as the entire charter school sector. The new report looks at Roger Bacon Academy Charter Schools run by Baker A. Mitchell, Jr., which prohibit girls from wearing pants or jeans to school in order, according to a lawsuit, to ensure they are regarded as fragile vessels that men are supposed to take care of and honour, based on a quote from the Bible's New Testament. A ruling in a lawsuit challenging the dress code is on appeal to the Supreme Court after a federal judge ruled in favour of Bonnie Peltier, who objected to the unequal treatment of her daughter. Students are also required to recite a daily oath committing them to be morally straight and guard against the stains of falsehood from the fascination with experts, while also avoiding the temptation of vanity and over-reliance on rational argument. A Sharp Turn Right also says one purpose of these schools is to raise the next generation of right-wing warriors to fight culture wars. Kyle Schidler a senior analyst with the Centre of Security Policy, an anti-Muslim organisation classified as a hate group by the Southern Poverty Law Centre, wrote in a recent article in The Federalist that donors should fund boot camps to train right-wingers in the political dark arts of organising. In the article, he praises Hillside College for the growing Christian classical school, school movement for the purpose of forming young minds. Schiedler is referring to Hillside's Barney Charter Schools initiative, which stems from the Barney Family Foundation, established by Stephen Barney and his wife, Lynn, in 1998. The report says it identified 59 charter schools that are open, or will soon open, that claim affiliation to the initiative. While Hillside's college mission is to maintain, by precept and example, the immemorial teachings and practices of this Christian faith, the mission of their kindergarten to 12 Charter schools includes a call for moral virtue. The foundation's 1990s tax forms show that in addition to its health and child-centred charities, it funds right-wing think tanks, foundations, and organisations that create conservative legislation on various issued uses, as models by Republican-led states. One recipient has been Hillside College, where Stephen Barney is a trustee emeritus on the board of trustees. Between 2010 and 2019, the Network for Public Education identified more than $4 million earmarked for the college from his foundation. In 2010, the Barney Charter School Initiative began with a half million dollar contribution from the foundation, and contributions in that range have been recorded every year, for which records are available, the report says. A sharp turn right discusses examples of Republican officeholders and party chairs who, like Oklahoma Governor Kevin Stitt, regressively pushed the conservative charter school agenda. Republican Heidi Ganal, who lost to Colorado Governor Jared Polis in the 2022 gubernatorial election, is a founder of the Golden View Classical Academy. She also advocates for one of the fastest-growing hillside-affiliated charter chains, Ascent Classical Academies, which operates two schools in Colorado with plans to open four more in South Carolina, three in Colorado, and at least one in North Carolina. The full report is available through the Diana Ravitch blog. And I'll just remind you again, it is time to donate. And ring 3CR, get on the line to 3cr.org.au. And uh, you can donate by bank transfer. You can donate by ringing up or even going into the office. And remember to mention the DOGS program. You've got to keep the fight for public education going. Now, we're just going to nip across before I finish to a short story from the UK for The Independent by Eleanor Busby, and she says, Adding VAT to private school fees could raise very little new revenue in a report. And in England, they're, they're thinking about what we were doing in Victoria, which was to remove the tax-free status uh, of uh, certain aspects of their education fees, in this case, the VAT. Uh, it's, she says, adding VAT to private school fees could raise very little new revenue if a quarter of the pupils leave the independent schools sector, a think tank has said. Forcing private schools to charge VAT on their fees is likely to have the least impact on the most expensive schools and the wealthiest parents, according to education think tank EDSK. It comes after the Labor Party has said it would end the tax breaks enjoyed by private schools, most of which have charitable status, giving them at least 80% relief on business rates. In September 2021, the, the party said the Labor government would end the charitable status of England's private schools raising an estimated £1.6 billion from VAT and £100 million from business rates. But the research paper from the think tank finds that charging VAT on private school fees is likely to raise far less than £1.6 billion. It claims that the calculations behind the £1.6 billion figure do not take into account a drop-off in demand for private schools if VAT is added to fees, which would require extra spending to educate these pupils in state schools. The paper suggests that even under a best-case scenario, based on the projection that 5% of pupils would leave private schools, the addition of VAT to private school fees would only raise around £1 billion a year. Under a worst-case scenario, in which 25% of pupils leave private schools, adding VAT to fees would raise very little new revenue, especially when additional administration costs for HMRC are taken into account. The think tank also warns that forcing private schools to charge VAT on their fees may lead to several unintended consequences. It says some wealthier parents may choose to pay the school fees in advance to try and avoid occurring VAT on them under a new government. Private schools that have built new swimming pools, sport halls, music and drama studios, laboratories or lecture halls could be given a possible tax windfall on major building or refurbishment projects, the report adds. Tom Richmond, Director of EDSK and author of the report, said Claims of £1.6 billion a year being raised from adding VAT to private school fees look far too optimistic, particularly if any more than a small number of pupils end up leaving private schools and moving to the state sector instead. What's more, changing VAT rules with with the sole aim of targeting private schools could lead to many unintended consequences that result in a government raising much less money than intended. Mr Richmond a former ministerial advisor at the Department of Education, said, adding VAT on fees is also likely to have the least impact on the most expensive private schools and the wealthiest parents. This could reduce the level of public support that any government can expect to gain from such a move. Julie Robertson, Chief Executive of the Independent Schools Council, said, these calculations show what we have been saying all along. Labor's policy will not raise the money it claims we would welcome any chance to work with all politicians to build on the good work already being done by our schools instead of penalising parents for making the choice of an independent school for their children. Francis Green, co-founder of Private Education Policy Forum and Professor of Work and Education Economics at UCL, said, while raising raising some valid points, there are a few question marks over this analysis. Interesting that there should be so so many of these um, question marks over these analyses by private schools, but yes, let's go on. Um, Among these is the fact that the author seems to assume that many private school parents will pay upfront upfront fees, which is in fact only possible for the very richest. It also fails to note that switches into the state sector are unlikely to happen immediately, with additional tax being paid in, in the interim. He added, on balance, scrapping tax breaks for private schools would amount to a small, somewhat symbolic, an overall positive step towards addressing the educational inequality caused by the two-tiered education system in England and Wales. A Labor source said, Labor does not recognise the numbers cited in this report, which rest on flawed assumptions and leaves more questions than it answers. We do not accept that the numbers of students leaving the sector would be anywhere near those cited in this report, something which previous research from the respected Institute of Fiscal Studies has also been clear about. The report also assumes that money not spent on private schools would not be spent on other VATable goods and services. That shows that this is simply not a serious piece of research. Labor's position and our policy remains clear. We will invest in our state schools by ending the tax breaks that private schools enjoy. Um, And what a great article, uh, just pointing out the the fabrications and the flimsy arguments uh, made by the independent schools and and their champions when it comes to basically public funding and public subsidy of these really rich, entitled schools. Now, before I go, I'll just, I'll just encourage you once again to donate to 3CR and mention the dogs when you do. Contact 3cr.org.au and, and donate, or you can ring up on 0394198377 and donate to 3CR and mentioning the DOGS program specifically help keep us alive and keep us on on the air. Anyway, thank you very much and back to you, Jean.
1: Well, thank you, Jeff, uh, and thank you for all the research you do for us every week. And um, It's very interesting, isn't it, how a lot of the problems that we have in Australia are mirrored uh, in the UK and the U- United States. There is a lot of a lot of toing and flowing, I think, of policymakers there among unfortunately their elites. As somebody said in the last week, the funding wars are over. The wealthy and the powerful have won them. But um, not for 3CR and not for the adults The wars are not over and certainly the battle goes on. But we need your money to do it and uh, we do have some money to report to you and dale is going to tell you about the generous people who have already rung up but if you haven't rung up and you want to get onto to the list there is a little list you can ring nine four one nine eight three double seven 8377 and pledge now and pay later over to
2: dale We do have some donations that I'd like to read out and say a big thank you to. So a big thank you to Oliver for donating $40. Oliver who contributes to our program. Thanks, Ali. And also, big thanks to... Spiros Scaftouros who's from Williamstown for donating $50 and I'm super excited to say that uh, some of my old schoolmates from up in Rockhampton have donated as well so thank you to Audra Bolton for donating $30 and also thank you to Teresa McNally for donating $50.00. I can't express how grateful I am that you've taken the time to donate to the dogs program. Uh, and these, these people are up in Rockhampton in Queensland and I went to school with them in the 80s. So it's really lovely to have reconnected and to have them supporting us. Uh, also, a big thank you to Casey Noodle for donating $50 and also to Ray Sabine for also another $50. I'd also like to say thank you to everyone who came to my 50th birthday party and put some money in the tin. Yes, it was also a fundraiser for the dogs and we managed to get together $208.06. So thank you everyone who came to my 50th and donated to the dogs. It all goes towards keeping 3CR and the dogs on air for another year and it is invaluable. We cannot express how much we appreciate all of your help. So thank you, everyone. I'm sure we'll have some more names to read out next week. But I want to say a massive thank you to everyone who's contributed. Uh, Casey, Ray, Teresa, Audra, Spiros, Oliver, you're all fantastic people. And thank you for helping to keep the dogs on air and helping the fight for public education stay on air for another year.
1: Well, thank you very much for leaning up and pledging your money for us, uh, all of those people. And a special big thank you to Dale, who had a birthday party and raised money for us. Many, many thanks, Dale. But um, even the widow's mite is worth a great deal to 3CR and to uh, the dogs. But we always like to end on a positive note, so let's go to a brand new... Public school. Here is the great state school of the
3: week. Every week on the Dogs program, we have a special segment to show a different state school is a great school. State
2: schools are great
3: schools. School of the week, state school. School, are great school. of the week, great state schools. The state schools, school of the week, schools. school for the week here on the Dogs program. Yeah!
0: This week's Great State School of the Week is Wallet Primary School. In the last few years, the Victorian School Building Authority built a new primary school in Wallet. It opened in 2022 to help the growing population, the growing local population, sorry, get a great education close to home. Wallet Primary School is a supported inclusion school, which is a mainstream school with additional professional capabilities and facilities designed to cater for a higher than usual proportion of students with a disability. Students with a disability receive enhanced support and high quality evidence-based education provision alongside mainstream students to the greatest extent possible in a safe, accessible and supportive environment. The 2022 supported inclusion schools offer additional amenities to support and enhance learning such as acoustics and lighting designed for the needs of students with particular disabilities, wider corridors where wheelchairs can pass, fitness rooms for physical education and therapy, enhanced accessible toilets fitted with hoists, smaller multi-purpose spaces suitable for consultations, one-on-one or small group learning, storage for specialist equipment such as mobile hoists, additional provisions for student pick-up and drop-off, covered walkways, and kitchen facilities for students with special dietary or medication requirements. That sounds like a fantastic school they have up there in Wallet. And I'm just going to throw some facts and figures from the ACARA website. The school has 226 pupils The ICSIA value of the school is 1,024, which is above the average of 1,000. The students are roughly representative of this urban development in outer rural Melbourne. 11% of students have parents that earn an income in the top income quartile. 33% of students have parents that earn an income in the second highest income quartile. 35% of students have parents that earn an income in the second lowest quartile, and 21% of students have parents that earn an income in the lowest quartile. But 82% of the pupils speak a language other than English, and 1% of the students are of Indigenous parentage. This is a school with some disadvantaged students and with a dedicated principal and teachers. Since it's a brand new school, the data for it is ongoing. Finances and NAPLAN results are not yet available. But there is evidence that this new school is off to a good start, and dogs wish the principal, teachers, students and parents well. Congratulations, Wallet Primary School. You are our Great State School of the Week.
1: Thank you so much to all the people who have contributed to this program, especially Dale, our our producer, but also all of those of you who have rung up and been so generous with us. But we'll be back next week because you have been generous with us. And the time has come to say bye for now.
4: I dreamed I saw Joe Hill last night Alive as you and me Says I, but Joe, you are ten years dead I never died, says he I never died, says he In Salt Lake City, Joe says I Am standing by my bed They framed you on a murder child Says Joe but I did says Joe but I dead The copper bosses killed you Joe They shot you Joe says I takes more than guns to kill a man says Joe I didn't die says joe i didn't and standing there as big as life and smiling with his eyes says joe what they can never kill went on to organize went on to Sandy San Diego up to Maine In every mine and mill Where workers strike and organize It's there you'll find Joe Hill It's there you'll find Joe Hill I dreamed I saw Joe Hill last night alive as you and me says i but joe you're ten years dead i never died says he